Hi, I'm Mike Halley, former Atari game designer, and you're listening to the Ted Dabney Experience. Thank you for listening. This is the Ted Dabney Experience, a podcast project by Retro Gamer Magazine's Paul Drury. Hello. Arcade blogger Tony Temple. Hello. And myself, Richard May. Each episode of the podcast, we talk with a notable figure from the proverbial golden age of coin-op video gaming. For my money, few are more notable than Mr. Mike Halley, project lead on Atari's seminal Star Wars, not to mention the gentleman's arcade game, Gravatar, and the unreleased classic, Aka-R, a relatively recent discovery for most aficionados of the era. Mike. Hi. Thank you for coming on the podcast. We'd like to start by talking about perhaps your most well-known game, which is, of course, Star Wars. You personally drove a Star Wars cockpit cabinet to George Lucas to test and have final say. Um, Talk to us about that. Okay. During the development, it was getting... Close. I I can't remember exactly the time frame between when I did that and when production started, but I remember that through the entire project, the people at Lucas were really concerned about every little detail, just like they were in their movies. So we got to um, a point where we were getting close to the point of wanting to put it out on test, but before they would allow us to do that, they would have to sign off on it. Mm Mm-hmm. So I can't remember why they didn't come down to Atari, but I remember that was one of the first times that I uh, had to load up a cabinet of that size into a truck and drive it up to Lucas Ranch for them to go through it with a fine-tooth comb. It it was actually, it was myself and my technician, Rob Rowe. Right. For some reason, I think it was in the back of a, we lifted it into the back of a pickup truck. I can't even remember if if George Lucas was at that particular meeting, but he had a whole entourage of people that played the game, asked me zillions of questions. We went through all the levels. We went through the self-tests. It seemed like I was up there for hours. Yeah, yeah. And did uh, did you get to see any goodies? I went up there many times and collected models and books and they literally had sketches and they they gave me so much stuff reference material that it was it was unbelievable so i think at that time i got another little show around but a lot of that stuff you know people are pretty private they don't want you to just see everything they're working on either yeah and i don't think they were really very much into the gaming aspect at that time they were heavily doing the movies they hadn't really branched off and and started their own uh, game development right okay but presumably they uh, definitely had a, a certain vision in, in 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 combination with i mean obviously you you guys at atari with the with the game designers but they were they they had a singular vision obviously for star wars and and you were given i assume uh quite strict guidelines for um for ship designs and, and and things of this nature absolutely they understood the limitations of the hardware I think mm. at the time, but and they knew that there was going to have to be some give and take, but they really wanted as close of representation 
they wanted it spot on if possible. I'm always interested if um, if they had a view on, I mean, for example, we talked to Owen Rubin, as you as you know, in our last podcast and uh, in, in his game Tunnel Hunt, um, the bad guy spaceship is a TIE fighter. And, the, you know, the TIE fighter is the ubiquitous bad guy spaceship in many video games um, post Star Wars. And people kind of got away with it. And I was I think I asked Owen I, and I, I said, did legal say anything? And they said, no, it's fine, you know, or, or they didn't say anything to him at all. And I'm wondering at that point when Star Wars was to become a video game and perhaps they didn't realise quite how, uh, perhaps even Atari, I, I don't know, didn't know quite how successful it would be. I mean, on one hand, it's probably a foregone conclusion, but on the other, who knows, right? Um, I wondered if they may well have mentioned to you anything of that nature about other video games or, or am I just reading into that too much? I don't know if you're reading into it too much, but I don't remember them mentioning anything like that to me. Okay, fine. I'm looking at your, um, or, or the wonderful storyboards, actually. The original storyboards were common. I think I think I had my buddy Dave Ralston draw them. Okay. From what I remember picturing the storyboards in my head, it was basically almost exactly the way we pictured it. We were going to have a, a TIE fighter sequence with the, with the X-Wing. And then you'd 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 get you'd see Darth Vader's ship, which was different, and that would be the first phase of the game. Yeah. Then then you go down to the Death Star, and you'd be fighting, shooting shooting the towers and the bunkers, and then the final phase would be dropping into the the trench to shoot the port at the end to try to blow up the Death Star. And I I think that's exactly <laughs> what we delivered. Mike, what were your initial thoughts when you um, when you were asked to head up the Star Wars project? Oh wow, I'm trying to remember. I'm trying to remember what project I had just finished and why I was available. And I think you may have come off Akarar. Akarar. Yeah. Okay. So I think what happened was Atari got into some negotiations because for whatever reason, maybe other companies were doing some licensing or maybe they didn't think we had strong enough product at the time. So maybe it was marketing. Mm. Somebody went and, and made first contact with Lucas. Yeah. But I remember Jed Margolin had a, he had a hardware. Warp speed, correct? Warp speed. And it really wasn't much of anything other than like a test hardware. Mm. I mean, there was really no gameplay to it at all. So, and the way Atari, from what I remember, the way Atari put together teams, they only had a pool of certain of, of their people, right? And then other people were busy on, you know, you're either busy on a product that they had greenlighted, or there were people doing prototyping and waiting for a product to be greenlighted. So I was selected as the project leader. Because I think that they thought I'd done a decent job with my first project, which was Gravatar. And I think it was just more of a timing thing. Sure. I think you're on record as saying they could have gone to Log or Rotberg, but they chose me. You know, they could have gone higher, but they chose me to go with this. And it was, uh, I think you, you, you sounded very proud of that. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I figured, man, this is a great opportunity. I better not mess this up. Fair enough. And why why XY? Why, why Vector for Star Wars? I don't know. I mean, that's the hardware that they were banking on. And Jed was uh, a real sharp guy. The way the hardware, I mean, when I first got to Atari, all the hardware was the entire game itself. Yeah. 
So there was no software programming. So then as software programming came along, the hardware was done. It wasn't, we didn't actually do like universal hardware. Yeah, that's right. It was bespoke. Yeah. Until we yeah. got to the point where we did system one and system two, where we tried to reuse hardwares. Yeah. So basically we would come up with the game and then we would create a hardware to try to do what, it, what the requirements were. Yeah. In this particular uh, instance, the hardware was started before what Star Wars did. So when I got involved in the project, I wasn't going to tell them, oh, I don't want this hardware. <laughs> yeah, I was sure, like, sure. okay, this is what the hardware, okay, can you do this, this, and this? Yeah. And then, of course, as the project went along, I wanted to draw more. I wanted it to be faster. I wanted more memory. And, you know, Jed would try to give us everything he could. And then, obviously, there was a price involved and the cost kept going up. And I said, well, I need this if you want me to do a decent game. The cabinet design, actually, for a moment. Let's just speak about that. I've got a few people written down. Ken Hatter. Okay. And Mike Zhang. Mike Zhang. Zhang. Okay, okay. Um, And I also have a photo of Barney Huang sitting in a mock-up of the cabinet. Also, not to kind of overload you with names, but I was also going to ask you about George Opperman and whether he had direct input on the on the graphics of the um, of the cabinet. Well, George was a complete stickler, and he was the hardest working person at Atari, and he did flawless, beautiful artwork as you as you, as mm. history has shown. I'm a big fan, yeah. And and he. I don't remember. I remember going into his office a lot and talking to him about how it's going and who's working on what. And I mean, if you think about it, between the upright and the and the sit down, just think of how much how many pieces of graphics there are. Yeah. So I think there was quite a few people. Plus, between the between the artwork, the cabinet work, then you had all the plastic pieces that had to be made. Yeah, like those plastic ram moldings. Yeah, exactly. So there was a, there were a lot of people involved in that project. Mm. I'm looking at a photograph, actually, in Tim Lapatino's Art of Atari book, and it's a photograph of George with, uh, I think, Bob Flemet. Flamati. Bob Flamati. I'm going to cut that one in, make me sound like I know in the first <laughs> place. Uh, and they're standing, they're standing with a little maquette model of the, the, initial, uh, the initial design for the, um, for the stand-up Star Wars. Was that just like a little 8-inch? Yeah, that's what it looks like. Yeah, it's like... That's the way they used to do it. They would, they would take foam cardboard and basically mock it up in a miniature size scale and then uh, then apply graphics to it because I guess it's a lot easier to show somebody something than talk about it. Yeah, for sure. And Tony, of course, has um, has photographs of Barney sitting in a, like a like a particle board, mock-up cardboard, mishmash, sit-down cockpit cabinet, um, presumably to get the ergonomics right. That is correct. They'd use a little bit of wood, a little bit of cardboard, and a little bit of this and a little bit of that just to deal with ergonomics ergonomics, eyesight, how big, how small, where your hands, you know, the whole range. They try to they try to make it so that as many people as possible, they could fit within their range. Sure. And arcades back then are obviously far more than about the software. The, you know, the design of the cabinet is an integral part of the game. Um did you did you find it a difficult project to lead, Mike? Because I, I understand it was a couple of years as opposed to uh, the typical turnaround for a coin-op, which was probably about a year or less in those days. 
I think a typical project was a year because everything was custom. We weren't starting with the hardware. Yeah. We weren't starting with the finished hardware. We were designing custom controls. The licensing was a whole another layer of approvals that took time. As far as the process went, as far as starting it to finishing it, it was about the same as every other project. Okay. You know, we had focus groups. We had field tests. We had pre-production run. Yeah. The the process was the same. What was, what was added difficulty probably was the, A, the licensing and maybe the fact that I'm not sure. I mean, this was probably everybody's first big project they'd ever done. Right. Okay. And yeah, you had a lot riding on this. What with it being Star Wars and everything. Well, we had a lot to live <laughs> up to considering how well the movie did. The speech, Mike, really... Um... I mean, listen, everything makes Star Wars. I, I, I love the game to bits. I truly do. I've got my own um, upright just sitting here to my right, and I, and I play it often. But, I mean, the, the speech samples really do make the game. That was Earl Vickers. Right. It was definitely something that um, we had to have. That was a fairly new technology. Mm. I think we used a speech chip from, I think it was TI. Okay. And and it wasn't there weren't a lot of tools at the time. So having to come up with sound effects, speech, music, all that was relatively on the newer side in development. Okay. So there's another reason that it took a little bit longer. But all in all, I think it came out great. Yes. Between the visuals, the surround of the cockpit, the your hands on the controller, it all just made sense. It's it's timeless, truly. And I think a lot of that is to do with the fact that it's XY, it's vector. Nobody's making vector games even now. Nobody's making anything even like them. They define a moment in time, yet they are classic. Well, Atari was always conscious of what other companies were doing. And it's my recollection that they were really worried about another company's XY game. Okay. And I think they had a space game. Do you recall which one that was? Somebody is going to have to look it up. I don't know if it was Star Trek, but I'm pretty sure it was a licensed game. And it was going to be an XY. And they kept telling me, oh, man, this is going to be tough. We're going up against this particular game. And I'm like, okay, whatever. While we're still on Star Wars, you mentioned it going out for tests and getting customer feedback. Do you recall those times... Um, of watching other people play Star Wars in, in, in perhaps in prototype form. I don't know. Did it go out as Star Wars or did, did yes. it go out under? Oh, it did. Okay. Absolutely. Um, I think the first test was, let's see. I mean, did it have a secret name? No, um, no, no. Prior to it? No, it was the full on, it was the full on game. For sure. I remember the sit down. I was supposed to be at the arcade like by five o'clock and I called him and I think we ended up, I think we ended up getting there at like midnight. And there was like one person there still waiting. They turned the lights on. We dropped it off. And then I, I drove back to Atari. I think the next day, someone called and said, well, how's the game doing? And they said, there's a line. It hasn't been a break yet all day. Wow. And we were like, yeah, okay, that's that's what we wanted to hear. That's a, that's a pong. That's a getting a call from the bar. And um, our, our pong machine's not working. Why? There's too many quarters in the damn thing. It shorted out, yeah. Mike, you're... you're, you're... Your appearance on on the Saturday morning show with with Gene Rayburn, which all all three of us watched that video and cracked up. Um, he he was quite a character. I was so nervous. I, I mean, you look nervous. I have to say, <laughs> I was pretty. I mean, I was pretty young. I, I mean, I 
I, Rob and I, we, we flew to New York. That was the first time I've ever been in New York. And it was obviously the first time I've ever been on a TV show. And, uh, and it wasn't, and, and it was like, they gave us like a five minute, okay, this is what we're going to do. Everybody good? Okay. And then, and then I had to start this show off. Right. If you if you'd watched the entire show, I was it was the best of. It was like the best hot tub. It was like the best whatever. <laughs> and it was like they start with me, the best video game or whatever. Listen, I was I was pretty nervous, but I I thought I did all right. My daughter th- you did. My daughter cracked up when she saw it the other day after uh, my buddy put that link up. My daughter goes, "Man, you look young and you had hair." You do look good and uh, despite the fact that Gene Rayburn is clearly busting your balls in 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 the only way he knows how, you did well. I remember I remember coming back to Atari and we had a big party and the company plays the thing on a big screen and they kept showing me at the end where I kept leaning into and Gene was trying to get me out of focus and I kept leaning. Yeah, 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 exactly. It was hysterical. I mean, I wasn't, I thought, I, I thought that's what I was supposed to be doing. Mike, um, you joined Atari in 1977, but not their video game division, their pinball division. Was, was pinball your first love? It was my first job. <laughs> I had, I went to the University of Santa Clara and in my senior year, they had Atari uh, sent one recruiter. I signed up for it. He was from the, he represented the, the coin op pinball division. They were looking for a mechanical engineer. And I, that was my degree. And I talked to him for like 30 minutes. And I think he was impressed. I totally was blown away. I'm not sure what my dad was going to think because he was an electrical engineer and worked at Bechtel in, in San Francisco. And I had done summer jobs at PG&E. And when I told him that this company named Atari gave me a job and I was going to work in the pinball division, I, I, don't, I, I, could, I could just remember what his face looked like. <laughs> I'm kind of interested that a lot of the old pinball companies like Bally and Williams, they were starting to get into video games, but he was Atari, the pioneers of video games, getting into pinball. Did you sense that Atari thought they could dominate both markets? Absolutely. Because all those old pinball companies, killer designers, but it was all mechanical. Mm. We were going to have electronic displays. We were going to do it completely different. And we did. You mentioned that you'd got a degree in mechanical engineering. I wondered if some of the things you studied in college, were they directly useful? when you started a tutorial or was it a question of sort of learning on the job? No, I think for almost anybody in a technical field, what you learn in college, you're really going to only use it for like the first year. So I had to calculate a bunch of stresses and springs and all kinds of mechanical engineering stuff that I'd learned in school. So it was totally useful, but there were a ton of things that the company wanted me to start investigating with structural foam making the cabinet out of structural foam. How about the whole play field? All kinds of crazy things. And that was all, I had to learn that on the fly. Yeah, you um, you worked on the, uh, the Superman table. I just wondered, was getting a license like that tricky back then? I, I was, I was such a peon in the company. I have no idea. <laughs> all I know is that one of the best pinball designers ever designed it. Steve Ritchie. Oh, yes. He's a legend. He's a legend. Yes. Um, and it was also programmed by a pretty pretty top-notch guy, too. 
Mr. Defender, Mr. Robotron. Ah, Eugene Jarvis. Of course, he had a brief spell. Yes. So what was what was your actual role on the, the Superman table? Because I understand you actually have a patent on that table. So I was I was part of the mechanical engineering pinball team, and they would just pick a guy and give him stuff to do. So I had to design the ball ramp. I designed the, they wanted a new spinning target. Spinning target was made up of all these folded pieces of metal and a wire. And I was like, and and after the ball kept hitting it over and over and over and over, it would start to break the paint off. And then it would get tracked around on the play field. And we were coming up with all kinds of uh, newer ways to do stuff. I I came up with a, a design where I would just take two stainless steel pins create a mold, put the wire in there, and then injection mold it. And then we'd hot stamp the graphics so that it could get hit a million times. It would never add any debris to the play field. And you couldn't take a magnet because it was plastic and stainless. So you couldn't use that magnet trick to try to spin it to get points. Another innovation comes with a table you worked on, which is Hercules, which, as the name would suggest, is huge. Um, who exactly thought it was a good idea to make a huge pinball table like that? I don't know. I remember I remember Roger Hector and his counterpart, I can't remember his name either, but they were really good buddies and they had cubicles right near me. And I remember Dave Steuben was involved in some of the electronics and everything had to be redesigned because it was going to use a pool ball. <laughs> instead of the steel pinball. So everything had to be supersized and there wasn't any way that anybody had anything that was going to work. So the slingshots had to be made, the thumper bumpers. I designed the the ball shooter, which had to be supersized. So I, I, I had to make sure that like it was already difficult enough because the thing was so wide that sometimes little kids would have to play one on each side. <laughs> Right. So right. co-op pinball. Yeah. So it was like, okay, so now I got to come up. I've got to move this ball, which has got a pretty good size mass all the way up the thing. But I've got to make sure that little kids can pull it back and launch the ball and they have enough strength. So I had to balance exactly how meaty it was versus how strong it had to be. And I had just finished a prototype, which was beautiful. And we had um, one of our weekly management walkthroughs. And Dave Steuben, who, who, if you know him, he's a real big guy. And he was part of the management team that came around and looked out how everything was going. And before we even played the game or anything, he pulled the shooter back and leaned on it <clears throat> and bent it down. So the game couldn't function. No, <laughs> it's always one. Um Despite producing some great pinball tables, Atari closes down the pinball division in 1979. Why? What went wrong? Considering that they'd sold 3,000 Supermans, they could have sold a whole bunch more. I mean, it's it was... We had actually perfected... I mean, every one of our games had some issues electronically or with the display or, or something. But when we got, when we finally got to Superman, that game was clean. It worked well. It was pretty easy to produce. We were selling a lot of them. We could have sold a lot more. And that was like at the height. So it must have been, well, there was a lot of divisions at Atari. Mm -hmm. Consumer, coin-up, yeah. computer, and maybe one of the, you know, it's always money, right? Doesn't everything come down? Don't most decisions come down to money? 
So once the pinball division closes down, you are moved into the video games division. What were your initial thoughts on that move? Well, what, what's crazy is that when we shut down the development for pinball management gave us a year to develop like the next generation pinball machine that's when i started investigating molding the entire playfield out of structural foam and not having to drill all those precise holes and that went on for like a year so I got paid to do pinball design for a year. And I think what was going to happen was we were going to try to set up a facility in Chicago. Oh. Because one of the problems that we had was that everybody, all the people that built pinball machines for the last hundred years, right? That whole base of talent and all the manufacturing, they're all in Chicago, right? Yeah. So I guess we had a really hard time competing price-wise, you name it. Maybe our margin maybe our margins weren't that good. So when you move to the video game division, does it does it seem very different from the uh, pinball division? Um well, I you've probably heard the story where I I told it a million times where I came to work one day and there was no one there. Right. <laughs> I was in I was in my cubicle and no one had ever told me there was nobody else left. Everybody had gotten their papers and someone finally before the morning was over came and said, "Oh, you're now working in the video game division." And I said, I said, "Really? You were the last to know that you had been moved into video games." Yeah, pretty much. I guess so because nobody told me. Tell us when you uh, when you start your first project. I understand that it was actually a mix of the old and new, a mix of pinball and video games. Tell us a little about the brilliantly titled game Penetrator. Penetration? Oh, is it Penetration? That's even better. Yeah, I've always been good at naming things. What? Yeah. <laughs> so actually, it was Dave. Dave Ralston might have been one of the other people that moved from pinball. So it was Dave and I, and we had worked. We had we had worked together on a prototype dual pin, which was two playfields, and instead of transferring the ball from one playfield to the other, there were just multiple balls around the playfields, and and we just did illusions. So when we hooked up with John Solowitz, who probably a lot of people know as a programmer that programmed a lot of games with Dave Ralston, Paperboy and games like that. Yeah, exactly. We were thinking, well, let's let's see if we can throw a little simple pinball in with a video screen. So I can't exactly remember how many iterations it went through, but I think that was the very start of what Aka-R ended up being. And I understand there's a story behind Aka-R. Mike, with what became Aka-R, at what point did it transition from what was initially intended to be some sort of pinball simulator into a video game? At what point was that decision made and why? I think the development did not take very long to prototype that. Mm -hmm. But I, I just, I don't think the management like understood and they just didn't see any need to, maybe the pinball part of it just didn't need to be there. But we were all pinball guys kind of. Mm -hmm coming into a, the video market. So we probably could have done the whole thing without it. But it's an iteration. You know, nobody has rules on how games are made. What's going to be a good game? What's not going to be a good game? And even if it is a good game, is it going to make any money? Nobody knows. Right. You just try stuff. And back then, I mean, we were pioneers. Yes. 
We really had nothing else to look at and say, we should do it like that because that's the way it's always been done. Yeah. To come back to your point, Mike, about um, no one really knows if a game's going to be a hit or not. Looking at the footage of Akaar today, it's funny with hindsight when you look at something in the here and now compared to what it looked like back in the day. As to why now I have an opinion, I think that looks fantastic and I would have loved to have seen this be released as a fully-fledged game. But clearly, playtesting was telling you that wasn't the case. The game was... I thought the game was awesome. Mm. I mean, the development of the enemies attacking from the outside, going through the screen. I was like, let's do something like peeking through the window. It's like, we'll zoom. We'll go from one screen, and then when enemies get to the other screen, it'll say zoom, and then you'll fight there, and then they'll do stuff, and then they'll leave. And it was insane. And I thought it, I thought it played so well, and it was so fun. Mm. And then we put it out in test in a location that the company had used in Florida. And it made 30 bucks in a week. <laughs> and I was like, you've got to be kidding me. Mm. $30? I thought this thing was going to be huge. So we ended up with five prototypes that are now worth, I think a guy paid me three grand for mine okay yeah i mean it's 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 like it's like my most famous non-famous game yeah one of the things that's common to akar and gravatar and i suppose arguably certain parts of star wars is this zoom effect and it seems to be something that you've that you've taken with you during your development of video games back then was that a conscious thing when i started at atari and i was looking at all the games it's like okay you got one screen and you're doing the same stuff over and over mm-hmm Asteroids. Killer game, right? Yeah. Centipede. One screen, you're doing basically the same stuff over and over. And in my head, I wanted to travel. I wanted to go somewhere. I wanted to change things up. I want to take my little spaceship and I don't want to just shoot rocks on one screen. I want to fly to a planet and then fly to another planet. Zooming is just a transition to go from one place to another. Mm. And I like that design. I thought it made sense and I thought that's what people wanted. I didn't think they wanted to play the same screen over and over and over and over again. Akaar amounted to maybe three or four cabinets. Five cabinets. Five cabinets. And it's a game that very few people have played until recently. We, are you aware of the recent uh, ROM leak uh, scandal, in inverted commas, that occurred a couple of years ago? Kind of. Okay. A buddy of mine named Scott Evans, I don't know if you know him, but he was like one of the biggest non-Atari Atari guys. And he actually ended up buying almost all of the hardware, games, paperwork, graphics. He ended up with all that stuff. And he's always been into working with Dave Shepard on simulation and how to copy this ROM and how to get this program that he's got on this weird uh, tape configuration. So through our conversations for over the years, we've always talked about MAME and all the different platforms that our old games have gotten to, legally or illegally. I wonder if we can move on to Gravatar. Um, I'm a big fan of the game. I've, I've got a cabinet here, which I play regularly. Um, I was interested to read that the genesis of Gravatar actually came from Mike Jang, which is interesting given that Mike was an industrial designer. He was an industrial designer, yeah. And he came up with the original concept of what Gravatar became? I, I really can't deny, and I can't remember. <laughs> Okay. And so the idea behind Gravatar, did that come from Atari's infamous black book of game ideas? Well, almost everything 
came from that yearly brainstorm book. I remember talking about Lunar Lander, the Rich Moore game, and I remember thinking of Ed Logg's Asteroids game. Right. And I remember the team and the game, well, I just don't remember who pitched what or how it got started. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One of the beauties of Gravatar, I think, is its um, almost open world nature in that you can attack the game in any particular order you like. You don't necessarily have to start at the easiest level. Well, one of the things that I had learned was it all comes down to how much it makes. So when a person gets really good at it, they don't want to start at the beginning anymore. And I don't want them to because that's just a lot of wasted time between their next quarter. Right. So I wanted to make sure you can go anywhere you want. Once you finish the four planets, then you're going to go to the next planet. Or you can just go through my little famous reactor and I'll give you more points than you could have gotten doing everything perfect in the first world. And you just jump and then boom, you're into a much harder something that you haven't seen yet. And I thought it was like a smart design. Yeah. Talking of the reactor, that bloody level um, kills me every time. I, I think I've managed to get through it twice. Um, Gravatar has a huge amount of depth to it. And I wonder if we can talk about some of those sort of deeper challenges within the game, like invisible landscapes and reverse gravity, and how you balance that with, as you say, the length of time a player is prepared to either invest in the game to get good or... Well, there was a lot of talk back in the day about what do you do when you get to the end of your game? Is it just over? I mean, what if you've got ships left? What if you've got fuel left, you know? What do you do? So, you know, I was looking at other people's games and everything. And you don't really you don't really think about it at the very beginning. It was definitely not in the design, initial design doc. I just started working on the game. So I just started making planets. And then I started making waves. And I'd get from one to the next. And I think there are four planets on a wave. And there's like three waves. And that's with regular gravity. So there's like 12 landscapes. Is that right? <laughs> uh, blimey, not that I've got that far, but yes, that sounds about right. And then and then it's like, okay, well, what do we do now? And then Rich and I were talking and we were like, well, what if we just went to negative gravity? And so the player had to play the game, but the opposite way. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that that's like one bit, one bit in the program. And all of a sudden we doubled our game time, our, our, our game depth. Mm-hmm. And we were like, okay, this is cool. This is cool. And then we got, and then we finished that and we were like, well, now what do we do? Well, what if we did like invisible? What if we made it invisible? And then, so people by this time are going to have memorized these landscapes, right? And you're going to see where the shots come out and that's going to kind of refresh your mind. And then every time you blow up, will light up the landscape to give you a quick glimpse of like where you are and remind you of the world that you should know a lot about. And then we tripled our, <laughs> we tripled our game. So that's, that's kind of how it came about. I have this theory that games like Gravatar now are enormously appealing because they've got so much depth to them. And as an adult, I'm prepared to invest time to discover all of these things and to get through them. But I just sort of wonder how that would have translated to a 15-year-old kid walking into an arcade and putting a quarter in and trying to play Gravatar with its five buttons. Five buttons. So do you you think that was the problem ultimately with, with Gravatar, that actually the target market it was intended for just found it too intimidating? And I guess in a nutshell, probably. But the thing was, is that I stole the exact button layout from Asteroids, one of the most successful games ever. 
to the masses, right? Yes. So I said, how could I go wrong? Mm -hmm. All I did was throw a little gravity in the game, right? That's a fair point. And then once we started testing it and developing it, there was this kid who had to have his mom and his dad sign a piece of paper so he could work at Atari. His name was Mark Cerny. And he came in my lab every morning. I was young. He was really young. And he would play it. And he would play it. And he'd play it. And an hour later, he was still playing it. And I said, you got to get off. I got to, I got to work. I got to, you know, I would move over to Rich Adams' machine. But then when Rich got there, I'd have to kick Mark out so that I could get back to my development station. He's one of the youngest, most creative, went on to Sega, moved to Japan. I mean, he's a, he's another icon of the coin-op and consumer developers that I've ever met. And He just happened to be like my personal 16-year-old tester. And I just kept making the game harder because it was so easy for him. And by the time I realized I was going to possibly be losing the normal player, I'd already created a game that was a bit intimidating Yes, to some. We can't leave the subject of Gravatar without mentioning the glorious cabinet artwork by Brad Chaboya. It's probably the most beautiful cab I own, but I have to ask you on behalf of every classic arcade collector and restorer in the world, why was the cabaret never released? Hmm, I'm not sure. I kind of figured you might say that. So there's there's definitely reference to it in, in old Atari documents, and there's a brief glimpse of it. Was there a, was there a problem with the size of the xy monitor i don't know don't know could have been the cabaret was always like an afterthought and we had already like we'd already like overbought overproduced had a warehouse full of them it had been in a friggin bond movie Mm. um it had plenty of hype yeah you know (laughs) they were like i think we're i think i think we need to move on we've lost enough money on gravatar (laughs) actually i got my first bonus from that project so it did make money okay um, just one other thing on Gravatar. I wondered what your reaction was to uh, your colleague Rich Adams' infamous letter to Atari management where he was berating them for agreeing to license Kangaroo and Mike's somewhat dim view of that whole situation. Well, we were under a lot of pressure. We were all young. It was like they really thought the game was going to be a hit, right? Atari's used to like selling 10,000, right, of a game. And we were really a young team. It was my first game. It was my first video game. And here we go out on test. And Rich and I, of course, in development of of games, I mean, people used to take cameras and record stuff, and it was so time-consuming. And we would see stuff, but I'd see stuff in the game, and I'd be like, you see that? No, I'll try to repeat it. So we, we put in the freeze frame, and we put it on the start button, put it on the one- or two-player start button. I can't remember for sure, but I thought... And then we put it out on test, and a half hour later, we got a call. There are two people playing the game. One person's playing the game, and the other person's controlling the start button. So a player would fly down to a... And then when they get it out of control and they're going to crash, player would hit the start button and freeze the game so that the player could get his mind together and orientate and then get ready to turn the ship and thrust. And that's how they were playing it. And it was like such a rookie mistake. I took blame because I was in charge. We had to burn new ROMs. I had to take them back out to eliminate that. that um, the fact that we didn't put it on a debug switch, but my point was that we got into a lot of pressure. We got a batch of hardware and there was something not working right on it, and nobody could figure it out. Atari was 
The management was, you do not go home until you figure this out. At the same time, management was licensing these crazy Japanese games. And Rich and I were working around the clock trying to, you know, finish this game and make it as good as we could. And Rich is a pretty fiery guy. And he just, he friggin' lost it. He ended up in a fight in the lab with Joe Coddington. He ended up writing that crazy and sending it to everybody in the company. You know, that was just part of my experience as a first-time producer-designer in CoinUp. And um, your role as the project lead, did that involve an element of trying to manage these guys under you like Rich Adam? Absolutely. I mean, I had to take the blame for everything because I was the person in charge of the project. I mean, I took on a lot of roles. Let's bring Mike back from both Gravatar, Akaar, through Star Wars and straight into other movie licenses that Atari did, such as Firefox, which I I love that movie to death. But it also, interestingly, marks... Um, it's an entry into uh, into Laserdisc for Atari. I believe that was Atari's first Laserdisc game. First and only. First and only, yeah. Tell us about the technology and at what moment did you realize it's not working in the arcades? So here's another typical Atari. They're behind the eight ball. Another company's going to have a laser disc game, right? Cinematronics, Dragon's Lair. Mm-hmm. Amazing game. And boy, it looked different, didn't it? Mm-hmm. It looked pretty cool. So Atari says, well, we got to have a laser disc game. I pitched um, The Shining. Wow. I didn't even. All work and no play makes Mike a dull boy. <laughs> I didn't know how I was going to do the game, but I think it was going to be tricycles in a hall. But anyway, I love licensed games, obviously. And I thought I was the king of them. And I was like, well, you can't go wrong with Clint Eastwood. We're going to steal that Firefox. And, you know, it's going to be awesome. Little did I know how much work that was going to be. And we're going to have to create a whole new hardware. It's going to have to support video. I'm going to have to make models. I'm going to have to go to the studio and go through an archive that hadn't been opened in 20 years and pick out little snippets of sky footage and ground footage and then somehow try to piece it all together and give them $20,000 so they'll let me borrow the Firefox model. Yeah. Yeah, and it was just insane. I was constantly up at the video place all night long, interweaving, trying to figure out how to make all these tracks so that the hardware can jump, whether you shoot and blow up the plane or not. It was insane. And I did that in like six months. Wow of like 24 hours a day. That was one of my faster games, but boy, was that one almost killed me. And it was, it was the same team I had had. It was my Empire team, my Star Wars team, my Firefox team. Well, interestingly enough, actually, I mean, Atari made the decision to release Empire Strikes Back as a kit for all the operators' Star Wars cabs. At any point, was Laserdisc considered as an option for Empire? No. Okay. No. Empire was a complete disaster, as in my opinion. Who would take out, who would convert a Star Wars into anything? Because they want to keep Star Wars, right? Exactly. Yeah. So why would you not, why are you going to offer a kit that nobody's going to buy? Yeah. Okay, so taking you back to those decisions and to those days, I mean, presumably you made your voice known and you pushed them to, I assume, develop a, a, a dedicated cap for Empire Strikes Back? It's not exactly a small movie, right? Absolutely. They've spent a million dollars on each of the three game licenses. Yeah, sure. I was a no-brainer. I said, if I can do Star Wars, give me a little bit more horsepower, Jed, a little bit more storage capacity, 
and I'll build these killer sequences with the walkers and the asteroids, even though that was kind of, that was weekly programmed, I thought, that that section. But um, they didn't tell me when I started that they were going to turn it into a kit. I would have probably never have done it. And Jedi was, uh, was a raster game. I mean, obviously, Star Wars and Empire were vectors, but then Jedi went raster. I don't know why. I don't know why. It was just, you know, timing. It was like, okay, I must have been busy doing something else. XY was kind of fading out. Remember, we had, we had some issues with our XY monitors. and I was going to say, yeah, sure, yeah. You know, the flyback was always blowing up. and But then there's a commonality there between XY and Laserdisc. You know, the, the fragility of the hardware. I thought they made a big mistake. I, I always wish that I could have done the entire trilogy. In, in XY, right? In XY. I think I could have done an awesome first-person speeder sequence. Mm-hmm. If I could do the towers, I could... I could do a forest. Yeah. I could fake a forest in a string line that, you know, I could have done it. Yeah. And I thought it really, I thought it took away a lot from the trilogy. Sure. Yeah. I mean, Dennis Harper's, he was a friend, you know, but uh, there wasn't anything I could do about it because I was busy doing something else. And the company never asked me if I wanted to do it anyway. Atari didn't like, they kind of told you. Mm. I think it's a, it's a smart looking cabinet. It's, it's, it has similarity to the, to the major Havoc design, but I, I believe it's not exactly the same. Yeah. No, I mean, it, it's kind of cool. Mm. It's just not XY. Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Mike, can you talk to us about the development of that particular game? So that was a Peter Lipson game. Okay. And we went on to work on a whole bunch of games together. Mm hmm. But um, I didn't start the project. I wasn't necessarily in charge of the project. Sure. I was added to the project. I designed all the layouts of the to whip the thuggies. Oh, and the minecart scenes. Yeah, sure. I basically came up with the level designs. Okay. But I thought it was a really fun game. That was kind of in the same area when like Ed Log was trying to do Roadrunner on a disc. And that was the last like laser disc. And then I ended up converting it on a system one hardware. So we were we were just starting that, oh, we gotta like save some money and, and build system one and system two. So that was kind of the start of like the the paperboy, that whole all those Ralston Solwitz mm-hmm. games that he that they did on system two. And then that was all those uh games that I did on system one with Bob Flanagan and Peter. Yeah. Skull and Crossbones, um Indiana but it, I, th- I liked Indiana Jones. Actually, I thought it was a pretty successful game. Yeah, yeah, no, I, 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 I agree. I think it was easier to play. I think I'd gotten over my "let's make it so hard nobody can play it." <laughs> you didn't have Mark Cerny uh, uh, game testing it for you, so no. it probably helped. No, and that was one of the first times that that Tari actually let the coin up team do the NES conversion. Right. So that was really cool. Even before there was no more coin up Atari, I had already been involved in like two or three NES consumer developments oh of course they got yeah they got you it yeah sure yeah so when tari coin up was all gone i already kind of had my hands in designing for consumer so i had a step up and i was like oh that's cool that the coin up team had gotten to do some of their own conversions for consumer mike when you joined atari warner had not long taken over but Nolan Bushnell was still there. And I just wondered, what was your view of how the company was managed at that stage? Could you sense tension between Nolan and the old Atari and this new management? Well, let's see. So all my 70s were in basically in pinball, and that was still Nolan. 
Nolan going crazy with the consumer division, the coin-up division, the computer division, and the pinball division. We thought we were pretty hot stuff. And then I do remember, I remember all the transitions. I remember the transition from Nolan selling it to Time Warner buying it, and then Time Warner selling it to Namco, and then Namco selling it to Midway Games. There were, I absolutely loved the Time Warner takeover. Ah, why? The, the guy who was put in, one of the top guys came to Atari, and I guess he was pretty smart because he, he singled me out, and I was like his informant. <laughs> He thought I knew what was going on, and he had me do all kinds of stuff. And when there would be a decision that needed to be made, you know, he'd say, "Well, ask Mike. Have Mike tell you what to do." So is that because you had sort of a foot in both camps, being a team leader but also being from an engineering background? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I could work with management, and obviously, I could work in the team development with all the engineers. I I like the fact that they own DC Comics, so they would send us like piles every week of of their comics. I would go to Comic-Con in San Diego and look for licenses with uh, some of the marketing folks. So I got to do a lot of really cool things as the years went by. And a lot of it had to do with Time Warner. Right. I'm I'm intrigued because sometimes the people that are actually making the games don't have much time for management or indeed marketing. You seem to be speaking quite positively about their role. Did your colleagues agree with you that the Time Warner takeover was a positive thing? Uh, I th- yeah, I, I think so. I mean, if you're going to be taken over, you want to be taken over by a big company that has stuff that you could use and had a lot of money. Right. Because everybody was worried, you know, anybody that takes over anything, right, they're going to what they're going to fire everybody and put their own people in. Right. Mm, That's the worry. But Time Order had like Beavis and Butthead. Right. (laughs) So we got to like pitch that idea and build that game, you know, so that was super cool. And it's like or maybe that was under under Midway. I can't remember for sure. But Time Warner didn't come in and replace anybody. They left all the management there. Right. They did exactly the same as Namco did. They brought. Hide Nakajima from Japan to America. And he, he loved me. So it was like, you're a likable man. Um, I, I want to stick with the, the management. We do hear stories of when Atari was absolutely booming in the early 80s of incredible excess of executives having gold-plated bathrooms in their offices. Were you aware of uh, this huge amount of money slushing around at the top? In the 80s? No, not really. I was young. I was a novice. 83 was what, Star Wars? That's when my daughter was born. So between Gravatar and Aka-R and, and Star Wars and Firefox, and I mean, I had, I had no time to do anything other than work. I really didn't, I mean, I knew what was going on around me, but I had no idea if somebody had a gold toilet in their bathroom because I wasn't, I wasn't allowed in there. Were you getting well rewarded for this? I mean, were you, were you, I mean, you just started a family. Were you well paid? No. When I first started Atari, I had to finish up. I was pre-med when I started my college career. So two years in, I switched to engineering, mechanical engineering. So by the time my four years was up, I, was, I had two classes I was short. I had to do my thesis, and I had a thermodynamics class, I think it was. So for the first six months, I was paid like five fifty an hour. Wow. 
because I wasn't a full-time employee yet because I hadn't got my degree. So you were paid on you were paid on an hourly rate and this yeah. is when you were working in pinball and making For the 6 months because I had I hadn't gotten my degree yet. Right. So I was working full-time and I was going to Santa Clara to one class and the other was my thesis which I developed a mechanical pinball apparatus for. That was my thesis. It was really super cool. We can talk about it another time. But but um you've got a doctorate in pinball. That's quite something. <laughs> I'm impressed. Um, let me ask you about obviously you're a big coin-op man. But at the same time that you're making these groundbreaking games like Graviton, indeed Star Wars, is that Atari's consumer division is absolutely booming. Um, tell us about that relationship. Did you feel that you were sometimes in coin-op kind of overlooked and all this attention was no. on the... Oh. No, we didn't care. We didn't even, I didn't even know those people. They were in a completely different building. And we were the real Atari. Coin-op was the real Atari. The other people stole our stuff and made a crappy version of it. Mike, um, we've talked a lot about the 80s, some big hits there, and, and a few misses. Um, as Atari goes into the early 90s, there seems to be quite a few false starts. Games like Marble Man and Metal Maniacs that kind of got developed but never in production. What was kind of going wrong at Atari in the early 90s? Um, Dave Toyer didn't have a hit. Ed Logg didn't have a hit. Um, I developed the only game CoinUp had in an entire year with Peter Lipson. That was the baseball game. Dave Ralston and... and uh, Solowitz and Ed went up to EA. Dennis Harper left. I mean, there was a big transition of talent. With all that change, you must have been very relieved when Area 51 came along. What was it about that game that, uh, that made it the hit that Atari desperately needed in the mid-90s? So Mark Pierce was in charge of engineering and uh, Robert Weatherby was a guy that I had worked with, you know, years and years and years ago. And we had been always been friends. And when Robert came to Mark and pitched a three package deal, um, I was in charge of all the game designers. And I wasn't doing a game. I was teaching, trying to teach the art of game design. And when Area 51 got pitched, the only good gun games were a reflected, mirrored configuration. And we thought that was stupid. We wanted the monitor right up in your face. And we brought in Charlie Grisafi from EA. And Rob was in charge of the project, Rob Rowe. And you're in, I think you're very responsible for, for the secret rooms in that game. I think Rob was the one really pushing that. Rob and Robert. But Charlie and I are the ones who, well, he programmed it. And I went through and I isolated and identified and I marked every different, like if there was going to be a secret room of such and such, Rob would figure it out and they'd come up with the graphics for it. I would go, okay, you're in this part of the game. If you shoot all these windows and all these lights, that'll get you into the secret room. That's what I did. I think the bathroom scene was probably the best. <laughs> Tell us about the bathroom scene. There was aliens peeing, and then we broke down, and there was like an alien on a toilet. That's always a high point of any game: getting to shoot an alien on a toilet. Um, yeah, I mean, it, I mean, it was just, it was just out there. It was, it was crazy enough to really work. Mike, you've talked at length in other interviews about being there right at the end of Atari. You know, literally shutting the door. Um, 
as you shut that door and walked away, what was your abiding memory of your long time um, with the company? At that point, I was 48, and I felt like I had worked for 50 years. (laughs) I was pretty tired. I mean, I felt really, I felt like I really completed my mission. Hmm. You know, I really gave Atari everything I had, everything. From the day I walked in the door in 1977 till the day I left in 2002. Well, thank you for sharing so many wonderful stories of your quarter of a century at the company. And thanks for coming on the podcast, Mike. Absolutely. Absolutely, Mike. It's been a real pleasure. It really, really has. It's fantastic. Thank you so much. Yeah, Mike, thank you so much for your insight. Um, This has just been golden from start to finish. Thank you so much. Oh, no problem. I hope I can remember as much as I can. And it's somewhat correct. I think my abiding memory, Mike, just coming back to it, is the TV show and you edging yourself back (laughs) into the frame. Hey, that that was gold. I was I was I was twenty seven. Is that the first time you've seen that since since it occurred, or or since they screened it at Atari? Yes. <laughs> yeah. What was what was what was what blew me away was that I sent the link to my daughter, who's she's my Star Wars baby. She was born in eighty three, and she had never seen it. She had never seen a video of me live on a TV show, and. How I looked. She tells her friends, I'm, my dad calls me the Star Wars baby. <laughs> it, it's interesting that they sent you, Mike. I mean, I, I'm surprised they didn't send someone like Frank Ballou, who, who was the, you know, marketing guy. They did send Frank. Oh, they did. Okay. But Mike was obviously better looking, right? I mean, clearly. <laughs> they sent Frank, Rob Rowe, me, and oh, the marketing guy that died. Uh, that was um, Don Osborne. Don Osborne. Yeah. I was in the lab late at night and Dan Van called me and we were working on Firefox and he said, Don Osborne just died. So that's why I added that tribute. I made a tribute to Don Osborne and I put it in the Firefox game. If anybody... Oh, my, I didn't know that. He was a young man, wasn't he? Yeah, that was quite a shock. He and I and Rob went to, we were in New York. We went to that big park and we watched Diana Ross in a concert in the pouring rain. That's what I remember about that trip and walking around Times Square eating slices of delicious pizza. I was like, wow, this is a big city. You've been listening to the Ted Dabney Experience podcast with me, Richard May, Retro Gamer Magazine's Paul Drury, and arcade blogger Tony Temple. The show was produced and edited by myself with a bespoke score and sound suite by Ghost of Wood. Additional technical support by Jason Arbor.
Thank <laughs> you.